Hi, I'm Paul, and this is Arcnex Sessions, episode 13. We've got a big show today with three guests. First up, we'll be talking with Aaron Willette about the competition that we're co-hosting with him and Rob Trumbor called Bigger Than a Breadbox, Smaller Than a Building. Next, we'll share a conversation that Amelia and Donna recently had with Elizabeth Timmy, founder of L.A. Moss, about how architectural design thinking can improve social justice matters in the city. And finally, Brian Newman, our legal correspondent, will join us to talk about a legal battle involving SOM in San Francisco, the outcome of which could represent a potentially huge new liability problem for architects. So, co-hosts, how are you guys doing? Amelia? Doing good. Doing good, yeah. I'm getting prepared to uh, head to D.C. later this week. Yeah, we're heading out there on uh, Wednesday. Yeah. Early Wednesday morning. Yeah, headed straight to National Building Museum for uh, Bjarke Ingels Group is curating a exhibition at the National Building Museum called Hot to Cold. We're looking at different climate reactions to architecture and how different climate cultures around the world deal with uh, building technologies. Should be really cool. I'm super excited. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm really excited too. I mean, it's in addition to the exhibition. Well, in the exhibition, Ewan Bond's work is going to be used to present a lot of the uh, photos of, of Big's projects. And also, Stefan Segmeister will be designing the catalog that's going to be published by Taschen. So there's a lot of really great design names involved in this exhibition. So we're going to be there on Thursday when this episode is airing for the, the press preview. But the actual exhibition, I believe, opens, is it on Monday? I believe it opens that the 23rd, but I will double check. Okay. But for those of you in DC or planning to go to DC, definitely worth checking that out. We'll have more information about the exhibition in our show notes. Donna, how are you doing? Hi, Paul. I'm good. I've been caught up this week in a uh, a little development project in my neighborhood that someone I know is the architect for a new condo development in the neighborhood. And most of the neighbors are just rabidly against it. And uh, I am very much for it. And uh, so I- I've been thinking all week about the modern Oakwood house and how that argument over the status of that house really sort of tore apart the neighborhood. There were a lot of people disagreeing who would have been better off being nice neighbors to each other. And uh, I find myself kind of caught up in one of these. Of course, I I'm not, I'm not directly related to it. it. It's in my neighborhood and it's a friend of mine who's the designer. So it's not my project, but it's just kind of difficult to watch people get really upset and scared about new development, especially when I think with my experience and my knowledge of cities, that it's a really good development, that we really should be embracing it. So it's been a little stressful. Is it an issue of aesthetics? Hardly aesthetics, although mostly size, which it is significantly taller than any of the other houses on the block. Um, It's in a very, very funny shifting zone between commercial and residential. So it's sort of the first encroachment of a commercial-sized building into a residential neighborhood. And it's something I think we're going to be seeing more and more of. My neighborhood is slated to get a bus rapid transit line here in the next few years. And I think we're just going to see more and more of this kind of smaller densification of small developments of apartments, condos, those kinds of things. So I feel like this project sets a really good precedent for what the neighborhood should do. And most people just, I think they just have their eyes shut. They don't want to see it happen. So, Hmm. Well, your neighborhood is lucky to have you as a voice of reason. Well, they don't see me that way, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> a few of them do. A few of them do. It doesn't happen overnight. <laughs> I know. I know. Ken, how are you doing? Good. A little tired, but um, projects are done and out the door and everything is hunky-dory. So You've been working a lot of hours lately, it sounds like. Yeah. Little to no sleep and high amounts of stress. So a lot of, I think, us architects typically go through uh, with self-doubt, you know, all the range of emotions when you're dealing with a project. 
So it's nice to be on the other side of it and kind of go, it wasn't so bad. (laughs) (laughs) So you get to relax tonight or you still have a little work to do? I'm going to relax and, you know, drink some bourbon or something. Yes, as you should. (laughs) (laughs) The (laughs) cure-all. How about you, Paul? What's going on? Not much. Looking forward to going out to D.C. I think we'll come back with some uh, interesting new content for next week's podcast. And uh, that's about it. So what do you guys think? Should we move straight into our first talk with Aaron Willette about the Bigger Than a Breadbox, Smaller Than a Building competition? Let's do it. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Let's listen. So we're joined today by Aaron Willette, designer, technologist, educator, and uh, curator of the exhibition Bigger Than a Breadbox, Smaller Than a Building. Aaron, can you talk about how this project was conceived? So this project is something that my partner, Rob Chambor, and I see as kind of a, a capstone to a longstanding research trajectory we've been working on relating to the role of the medium of installation within architecture. Uh, trying to look at how architects have kind of appropriated a medium from the fine arts and have started to use it and leverage it in a unique manner to explore architectural and spatial ideas. So this competition is requesting specifically that designers revisit previously designed installations rather than create new work or submit documentation of a previously completed project. Can you tell us a little bit about why that parameter is is set in place for this competition? Yeah, so that was a very specific parameter we decided to come up with because for us, we wanted to be curating projects that have been realized in some way, shape or form. But at the same time, we wanted them to be specific to uh, you know the context of uh, the lobby, the building where you know the exhibition is being held. So we felt that because typically installations are used as kind of an iterative tool within research, that this would be a good way to allow people to take you know some aspect of the research they've already looked at and realized to a certain extent and kind of revisit it. Um, and we also figured it, it would be a a unique way to go about getting some projects from a, a wider range of people who might not always, you know, have something at the ready to submit. So Aaron, the potential people who are going to apply for this or try to enter the competition, they're not solely architects. How do you imagine they're also potentially um, artists, designers, students, engineers, etc.? How do you imagine those entries differing from the basic architects entries if they're all kind of going in and up on a, the platform of the basic pavilion? You know, I think you know that that's actually a fantastic question because I'd really say that there might not be that huge of a difference because I think artists, architects, engineers, designers, everyone who are using this, they're exploring spatial questions. So I think it's just the nature of the topics that the individuals taking on that will add the variety, not necessarily their personal background. I would not be surprised if we were to have artists who are looking at the same questions that you know architects may be looking at in a similar project. And we're hoping to show through this exhibition that that there's this whole body of work that we don't typically associate with architecture that a lot of people are doing, you know, some really valuable work in. So then how does that relate to the specific space that the pavilion is going to be exhibited in? It's, I believe, the plaza or the entryway for the Boston Society of Architects. Is that correct? Right. Correct. So that's going to be the the entry lobby to the building that the BSA space is in. Uh, It's actually... Down on the first floor, the BSA space is up on the second, looking down on this. So, you know, we're kind of leaving that interpretation up to the individual design teams on how they want to bring whatever topic they're looking at to the specifics of this space. 
you know, they may make it extremely site specific if they're looking at you know, new technologies regarding lighting or something along those lines, or it might be something that they just unfortunately try to force into the space. You know, we'll see what we get. Aaron, can you describe the selection process? So the selection process for the competition, we have a two-stage jury. So the preliminary stage has jury members. So it has Rob Trimbora and myself, the kind of the co-curators of the exhibition. We have Emily Grandstaff Rice, the past president of the BSA. We have Mary Fitchner, who's the, the director of programming for the BSA space. And then we're going to have a representative from Arcanec to be determined. And uh, someone from Boston Properties, the, the company that kind of manages the lobby space where the installation will be going. So then that will kind of call down. Hopefully, we'll be a large body of applicants for the main jury. And we have uh, Shauna Gill-Smith, principal of ground and professor at the Harvard GSD. Ben Ball, as most people know, from Ball Nogue Studio. Uh, Monica Ponsolion from Monica Ponsolion Studio in University of Michigan. Jenny Sabin from Jenny Sabin Studio and a professor at Cornell. And uh, Fran Ovilich from Kennedy Village Architecture in Boston. So the, the process, we're going to be looking at how people are specifically using the installation to explore other topics. That's kind of the primary gist of what we're going to be looking at and kind of what is the value of these topics to you know the profession of architecture, to how we understand of or conceive of space. And what about the integration with the prior project that the um, applicants must submit? How, what kind of, I mean, not that you're going to give away your uh, evaluation strategy, but how are you kind of conceiving those two to work together? Is, is it just to suggest an overall growth in the, in the given applicant or perhaps something more specific? We're more looking for kind of how the applicant decides to grow and expand upon the project through the opportunity to, you know, revisit it through this. I wouldn't say that we're looking for any kind of specifics as far as the relationship between the two, just for the fact that there is development and you know further expansion of a topic from one to the other. Okay, so I was um, the stipulation that this be something that was existing previously in some installation space and then would be reconfigured or reworked for this space is the intent that or the hope that maybe it would continue on into something else. And I see that Benjamin Ball from Ball Nogis Studio is one of the jury members. And I worked with him on a project here at the IMA a couple years ago. And I think that that's one of the places where I've seen installations sort of come up against a wall is it, it you do this amazing piece in a space, it affects the space, it gives an experience to the users, and then it just kind of goes away. So are you thinking that that's, you're, you're trying to push into thinking more, how do these temporary exhibits start to become much more long-term or much more architectural or sort of thinking that they're starting to become something that can be transformable for a longer time and to various locations? Are you open to all of that? I'd say we're open to all of that. Um, <laughs> I mean, for, for us, the beauty of the installation is how it can be, you know, so many different things to so many different people and everyone be free to kind of take it you know, in their own direction, as far as how would it fit to the overall trajectory of the project that this person might be submitting, perhaps, you know, because it's being designed specifically for the lobby at the BSA space, its longevity beyond that might be questionable. We are currently looking at opportunities, perhaps travel the show to other galleries at perhaps other universities, uh, but that's still something in the works. And this is intended to be built in the space, correct? Yes, this is intended to be built in the space. Okay, so does that mean that there's one submission that's going to be awarded? Yes, yeah, so there's one submission that will get kind of uh, the grand prize, which will be $3,000. 
towards the realization and completion of this project. And then Rob and I and representatives from the BSA could work with the winning team to help them hopefully find other sources of funding, material sponsors, stuff along those lines. Uh, in addition to that, we're going to have about up to 10 or so projects that will grant $500 to with the hopes that they'll be able to submit uh, some kind of aspect, a module, a component, some you know one-to-one -one scale piece of their exhibition to be put on display alongside with uh, their project posters. So I would like to know about the name in particular. <laughs> How did this name come to be? And when does the bread box hold any architectural significance to anybody that I might just not be aware of? No, for us, it was just trying to bookend the scale of what we're looking at. So for us, we're saying the bread box is perhaps, you know, the industrial design object. And then the building is where the threshold of architecture is. So something that falls within this range could essentially be brought into this conversation of installation. And of course, we wanted a clever title. <laughs> it works on that account. I'll yeah, give that, that. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> hey, Aaron, how important to you when you're making, or at least when you think about the jury process, is constructability going to be in terms of awarding the project? One of the concerns or one of the things that I was just thinking about was this could really just easily just become a book and that's the end of it, the story or a monograph of some sort. Do you think that's the criteria by which you start looking at a project, whether or not, you know, the funding is available and can it be constructible? Because that's one thing I was thinking about is the realization of this project is so important beyond actually winning the competition. I think the realization is much more important than uh, the images. Right. So for us, we're definitely going to be looking at the constructability of this. And that's why, you know, Rob and I, along with the representative, representative from Boston Properties, are in that first stage jury because we want to make sure whatever gets pushed in front of the final jury, you know, it's a feasible project that can be realized. So, you know, we're not going to set ourselves up for catastrophe by having a project that wins that we can't bring into the space because this is happening in June. You know, the exhibition will be opening with or without this piece. So we want to make sure we have something that's going to be phenomenal. So the exhibition's opening in June, the deadline for the competition, February 15th, right? Yep. Correct. Okay. Well, for those of you that would like more information about the competition, the competition website is BTABB, it's short for bigger than a breadbox, .com. And Aaron, thanks so much for joining us and talking a little bit about the competition. Thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure to work with Arconnect on something. Oh, it's a pleasure to work with you too. I'm excited about seeing the uh, submissions come in. So am I. <laughs> <laughs> Start sending them in. Okay. Yes, please. All right. Thanks, Aaron. All right. We're back. Donna, Ken, do you guys have any uh, previous installations that you might consider submitting to the competition? I don't, but I've been contacting my friends who I know have them and telling them that they should submit. So um, Good. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like such a cool scale. And, you know, my friend Wes Jans is an architect up in Ball State at, at Muncie, and he has always talked about these. The way that we use recycled materials tends to be that we find found materials and we reuse them once. And then is there a way to continue that life to, to go further with them and do another iteration? So I'm actually really interested in this as a notion of not just doing something one time and then it just goes away, but that it's this constant iteration of reusing and re-employing and re, you know doing doing it over and over again. I think mm. it's a it's a great focus for a competition. Yeah, that's a really nice way to interpret the the brief. 
Well, for, for those of you that listened and are excited to submit something, again, the submission deadline is February 15th at midnight. And all the information for the competition, including the submission form, is at btabb.arconnect.com. And uh, yeah, go ahead, start submitting. So for our next guest on this episode, it's kind of a similar to what Dono, you were just mentioning about how we can think of different ways to recycle things and, and really embed them into whatever they're being used for instead of just thinking of them as a one-off thing. Donna and I recently spoke with architect and designer Elizabeth Timmy, who is the founder and co-director of an organization called LA Moss here in Los Angeles. They do design interventions for social agency and social justice issues. They do an amazing variety of work. It's really difficult to kind of pare down exactly what they what it is they do. But Donna and I had a great chance to sit down with Elizabeth and just ask her about how the organization came to be and what they've got in their avenues. So let's uh, go to that conversation now. So today I have Elizabeth Timmy in studio um, at the Arcanex office. She is the founder and director of LA Moss. I will let her describe what that is because I think it's a fascinating, unique institution in LA. And we're going to have a little chat about what she does. So Elizabeth, thanks hey, so much for coming. I've got you. my radio voice on. Thank you. And your hands <laughs> on your hips, which no one can see. So now you can paint a picture of what we're doing in the Arcanex office. And we're also joined by Donna Sink, who is coming in from her hometown, Indianapolis. Hello, Donna. Hi, Elizabeth. Good to talk with you. Great to talk with you. So as any nonprofit has this, you know, challenge of constantly rebooting their mission every two years. And so, you know, at this moment in time, we call ourselves a design nonprofit that looks at the intersection between... Uh, development pushes and community need. And we consider ourselves a lab that is really testing ideas at this crux or junction or pressure push in the city. And we've been working in LA, but we've worked in Cincinnati and we do work in an internationally as well. And sometimes, you know, I, I say we're, we're intellectual contractors and sensitive activists and it's it's really hard to talk about full scope of work nowadays because of liability in our practice. And we increasingly ta have taken on more and more and more things we do as architects. So by proxy, I think that the different streams or channels of architecture have become increasingly more narrow or specific. And so this was a real reaction to not wanting to just do residential homes or urban planning or um, adaptive reuse, but really look at architectural uh, architecture as a cultural pursuit and a viable strategy for a critical dialogue in the city. And, you know, we do a series of projects that are plans to paint. We always leave something behind. We work in communities that are traditionally churned and uh, mined for their, you know, quote unquote, interesting problems and people walk away and they, they don't, you know, necessarily do more than talk. And so, yeah. There's a problem with identifying areas that are, have a clear issue that they need dealing with, but then also people, the people who identify the problems also don't have the ability to always follow through. Yeah. So let's maybe backtrack a little yeah, bit. Yeah. So you spoke a little bit about how, why LA Moss had to come about as mm -hmm. you as an architect, but so let's start back when you're just finishing school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was the kind of architectural professional context that you were totally. graduating into mm -hmm. and you thought, what what was your reaction to it and what, how did it lead to finding Ellie Moss? Well, it's super 
interesting, the time in which I graduated from undergrad, because I came out and it was fat. It was like, just like everyone was making it rain. You were just like, people were showering you with healthcare options. and Which was like mid-aughts, uh, 2005? 2005. Okay. And I remember going in, into interviews with uh, like Daily Ginnick and, you know, the first thing they wanted to say is like, well, what kind of healthcare do you want? And all this other stuff. And I was just thinking, I don't care. What would I do? And um, I went from that into when I graduated from uh, the GSD in 2010 and people were saying, well, you realize architecture is not completely necessary. Like you realize that, you know, we've got a crisis on our hands in the state of California. You know, you're going to have to sit tight and wait for someone to come to you with a job. And so it was really interesting being a third generation architect that strongly believed in the value of design and architecture as a discourse that was always deeply centered in civic culture to be told that architecture was hollow and an accessory to society was really frustrating. And I can understand why if, if you didn't have a father as an architect or a family member that was from a different period of architecture, you would also perceive it as a, an extension of media. So for me, LA Moss was this real response to having been asked what was the value of architecture and why was it at all something that was tied to culture or social issues. And specifically in LA, did you find that context was even more acerbic in LA where people were just not willing to invest the same amount of attention and importance in architecture? So, you know, at this time in 2010, Jerry Brown had come in and gotten rid of the CRA. And that's that's a really sad thing for California. It's a really sad thing for LA. We had the highest unemployment rate, more so than lawyers. And I remember talking to a lawyer and they were, you know, everyone was baffled. And we had at the same time a huge housing need. And it's really interesting because if you look at Curbed LA and all these other places, they're really talking now about the housing crisis and how much we need to start investing in public housing. And Michael Maltzen's awesome uh, Carter Apartments was just in Mark Magazine. And so people are actually, I think, really fantastic architects are looking at housing again. But people like Lohan or Hurley or Daley Genick or all these architects in LA who had been dealing with housing and furthering a conversation about mixed use and how architecture is inherently urban we're just all put on pause. And so there has not been any clear channel put back in place as to how architects should be having a dialogue with urban and social issues. And so it's these one-off things where Eli Broad or, you know, someone else like makes a donation and then we get to have a monument, but it's not a full strategy. And at the same time, Eric Garcetti, which is awesome, has come in and said, I want to do People Street I want to look at great streets. I want to talk about the LA River. And he's really positioned himself as an urban thinker, an urban mayor. And that is super exciting for all of us. But, you know, LA Moss is is really critical of what the city puts out. And it's not that we don't think it's awesome the city's putting out these plans. It's that that is the nature of design. Like the nature of being an architect is that you are having a dialogue through iterative design 
about policies and issues that are present in the environment. And that's what I think is the key to LA Moss and understanding mm-hmm. why LA Moss is first and foremost still an architecture and design firm and yes. not not a social activism broker or yes. someone who comes in or consultant. Mm-hmm. There, are, there you do consultancy, but not in the form of like the person swooping in with a tie and telling you what you should or shouldn't do. No, totally. So I think it would really be helpful to explain. Maybe choose a particular mm. project that LA Moss does, and then explain like give me the whole spiel of it. Like how did it? How did you identify the problem? How did you go in there, and what things did you decide? Did you attach an architectural way of thinking to solve? Um, well, I can tell you a project that we're working on right now, which is a great streets project. I mean, I don't. We could also talk about the Futuro project too, because I know that you. So, were great streets is is just for a little context for those who don't aren't in LA. It's a project that Mayor Garcetti has kind mm-hmm. of been pushing a lot for where people in specific communities are given a toolkit to design. Each council district. Each council district, excuse me, are given a toolkit, can vie, can apply for a toolkit. Oh, wait, oh, sorry, Great Streets. Great or Streets. People Street. Oh, okay. See, this is also where my... <laughs> so maybe as the Californian, no, I'm still like, not totally... if we do not understand what... Oh, see, I have to... I was just about to say the F-bomb. I have a little note here that says, don't say the F-bomb. We'll see if we can crack you throughout the episode. If we don't understand, you know, if these things are so profoundly sanitized and written not from the perspective of people who are looking at the mix of parts that it takes to actually create unique conditions in a city, like it's, they're completely indecipherable to the average person. (laughs) And so, yeah, when I have a program, we have two programs in LA, People Streets and Gray Streets. And I get to get them confused. That's exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> um, but so we're well, going back to that. Maybe yeah, talk yeah. about the Futuro Frogtown project. I would love to talk about People Street, but we probably should not because I will get in trouble with a lot of my <laughs> peers who have put a lot of time into it. So Futuro was this really incredible opportunity that we had to really unpack that intersection between development pressures and community need. And we had noticed that in the past year, both had become polarized. And I think three great words that talk about this polarization are NIMBYs, gentrification, and displacement. And so these three terms are getting thrown around everywhere throughout the nation to talk about the fact that we live in a broken system where people with capital and access to capital come into a neighborhood that they're probably not native to and they build something and they have a series of rights to do that. But also embedded in that process is that they actually do need to talk to different community members and and a community does have a certain amount of leverage to say, we don't want this or, or, or you can't do that. And what it does instead of zoning and code saying what they want a city to look like and Instead of there being a clear, straightforward way in which things get built, we have all these open gaps and spaces for people who are not very articulate to have power through negotiation. And it cuts out the majority of the community and it cuts out the majority of people who are awesome wonks in the city of LA or any other city to vie for a better policy or to vie for a better process. And so you have these one-off series of negotiations where projects get built that most people don't feel included by. On both ends, architects are like, why is that so hideous? And community members are saying, you know, like, that's an eyesore. And so, you know, the stuff with Jeffrey Palmer, 
really great example of that. So we created what we called a co-visioning process, which was putting community members, developers, property owners, which is sometimes, you know, the developer and city officials all at the same table. And we weren't trying to sanitize the information anyone had. And we had this awesome developer leading it named Mott Smith, because we really wanted there to be teeth in what the community was putting forward that they wanted. And so it was, it was saying like, let's, and, and, and also the big point is that we were trying to inform the cute conditions, which is an overlay that's going to go over this area, just affecting the industrial section along the LA river. And so it was an attempt to really try to start having a direct model for dialogue with community members, developers, and policy. So this was an avenue for creating direct access between developer, the guy Mm -hmm. with the money, the guy with the push, and the actual people living in the community. Yeah, because often the developer is not interested in putting something out that a community is not going to be excited by. Like, you know, there are these rare cases with like the Millennium Project maybe is a good example, where there's a separate community adjacent to a development that has an idea about something. But in most instances, these are developers that want to hire locally. They actually really do want their project to be seen as an asset. And and it's just a polarizing process right now that's making different parties ambivalent about each other's needs. So in another project that L.A. Moss has worked on, that's a complete one. So maybe you can also maybe comment a little yeah. bit more discreetly on it, which was your work in Watts for a yeah. uh, commercial district. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to hear you talk about that because I think it really isolates a very specific function and mechanism for doing something mm-hmm. simple, but very effective and very impactful mm-hmm. that you don't automatically assume would be on the mantle of an architect. So maybe talk a little bit about that project. So we have been doing a series of these projects where we look at what are the real rights of a property owner or the public at large to public space. And so the Watts project was a was taking two blocks along the Wilmington corridor and working with 11 businesses and and you know this fluctuated wildly because it's really hard to maintain a business in Watts, unsurprisingly. So there was like a certain percentage of, of uh, small business turnover, even in the six months that we were working, just super hard to watch. And CD15 came in and said, we did this big survey and it's been a year. And if we don't do something, the community is going to lose their mind. And we said, okay, uh, well, um, we would have liked to have, you know, talked, been there when you did the survey and really understand what that was about. So, you know, we're going to redo part of the survey so we can actually, you know, not just have something handed us to us. But how long do we have? And they said, oh, you know, like six weeks. <laughs> we, <laughs> uh, how about four months? And so in four months, we redid their engagement process. Um, someone in my office, you know, a real partner, Helen, uh, Lern has, was working in Eric Garcetti's office when he was a Hollywood, a council district member. And, um, she was his field deputy director. So she completely gets this. And she was going out there every week, two or three times a week and talking to every single property owner. So that was really important, right? Is that as architects, like it can't be transactional. You can't have someone hand you like it, it's, it's insane to me and insane to a lot of other people in our generation 
the notion that we go to school to be critical thinkers and then like someone comes to us and says we need you know you to work focus on lighting street furniture signage and you know do it like for eighty thousand dollars and we've definitely gone back you know in these instances and said well we need 20 and you maybe you just need lighting and so from that we went and you know intensively met with with these 11 property owners and talk to them about what they were selling because what was presented to us was that they just sold a lot of crap. <laughs> and we were like, okay. That's not helpful. <laughs> no, it's not. And, you know, they were like, it's just, it's all the same stuff. Like, it's just all, you know. And we went there and we realized there was like clearly a, a party supply store, clearly. And then there were clear distinctions. At the same time, we were having uh, conversations with someone called Doc, who leads the only professional sign painting school in the United States. And that's at LA Trade Tech. I know, Whoa. right? My, like it didn't your mind just blow? Yeah. That that's like only, <laughs> yeah. Way to go LA Trade Tech. Totally. Yeah. But there are all these uh, sign painters who are apprenticing on plywood in a school. And we said, how about you come and do it in situ and can you start in two weeks? And so Doc was like, yes. And and so there's an awesome documentary called Sign Painting, which you should absolutely see. We also worked with Marjorie Garrison, who's in that documentary as well, because we really felt like it was an opportunity to kind of collaborate. So we brought in Doc and, and her. And we developed this kind of overall identity to the corridor. And we also worked with Ace design build center, which is the design build center at Woodbury University and 22 students there to build street furniture at the service of all of these businesses. On top of which we hired 10 youth from the neighborhood to be mentored by the ACE Woodbury students. So we had all of these really intense layers of trade on top of each other. And it was a really rich, incredible experience. You walked down this corridor while we were building and it was a previously completely empty corridor and there was all this life of people building um, benches, other people like painting up on ladders. The youth hires were so much fun and they were like making sandwiches and cracking jokes about Medea. And um, <laughs> it was just, you know, it was like, this is what architecture is. You know, it's this complete process. And it's, it's a way to invest capital in actual making, through making, and to really give ethics through craft. Right. And then like the last person who touches something is the designer. So Elizabeth, can I ask you something about this project? Mm -hmm. I read the curbed profile and it talked about one of the challenges or one of the things you saw as a challenge was that for these business owners, they were a certain distance too close to freeway ramps and therefore were not allowed to have large signs. And that your response to that was we need to push up against this zoning law. We need to push up against the, where the laws prohibit people from doing things that really are good ideas. When you were talking about how we come out of school as critical thinkers, but then a client will just come and say, OK, here, I need you to do this. We, as architects, as designers, want to think about these bigger, mm -hmm. bigger impacts that we can have. And could you talk a little more about how you sort of are willing to push up against laws and say, we need to do what's good, whether it's legal or not? So I am also on the Recode LA team. So I'm a part of the 21 people for the 21st century that are rewriting the uh, derelict code of LA. And we shortly found out that what that really meant was that we were going to be collapsing the existing ornate and Byzantine code, period. 
we're not like there's like collapsing means like demolition. Well, what is... no, we're we're <laughs> basically we're we're taking all of these lines of specificity and and kind of streamlining the all the different sections into something more coherent. But you know, we had this big long process of feedback where each of us from our different wonk tables said we, you know, I'm passionate about health and design and. I said, you know, there's there are cities that have dealt with strokes in this way and that way. And we could start coming up with zoning for health. Like that would be incredible so that hospitals that are great at cancer can, you know, have a catchment for that that's relative to, to how the city is laid out. And we could actually start looking at all these clinicas and like organize. And they were just like, okay, cool. And, you know, just took it as a note, but in no way, shape or form, are we going to be progressive with this new code? And we all got really upset about that. And they said, well, look at this new sign ordinance. Like this is an example of what you could do. And we're looking at it and it's just crazy specific. And the problem with something that's incredibly specific is that it doesn't fit 99% of the people or their problems. I feel like I just said a rap song. <laughs> oh, no, um, absolutely. And it's truth. Speak the truth. So, you know, it was it was like clearly one person was pissed that they were looking at signs along a freeway. And so they were saying a thousand feet, like, can't put signs. Well, guess, guess what? You know, like that's where lower income communities are building businesses. That's where you purposefully cut through lower income communities because you were uncomfortable with African-American populations. And so you built a freeway on top of them. Like, why are we not looking at the history of Los Angeles and how it's been built in an incredibly exclusive way to partition the city north to the affluent and south to the lower income manufacturing Long Beach side? And like, you cannot, like, there's not anyone in the city right now who's talking about the history of riots or racism. And so we do stuff like this, the sign ordinance, and it's, it's, you know, crippling for anyone who wants to draw business in outside of the interior of their community. So I, I don't know if that explains what I was saying in that curved article, because there was a lot of shits and fucks in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, because it's a clearly very frustrating experience where you're yeah. You're you're brought in to like this great young hip team of people to try mm-hmm. to completely overhaul a system that I believe the LA zoning code was mm-hmm. first formally put out in 46. Yes. And it's since kind of just sprawled out. A little addendums have been added since, yes. but none of it has been coherent or really all has not been integrated effectively at yes. all. So, and you know, this manifests in a lot of different ways that you're saying, but mm-hmm. it ends up meaning that certain instances powerful people have been able to put in an idea that sticks <laughs> yeah. and it doesn't make sense at this point. So so maybe you could talk a little bit more about who was on this committee for or different wonk tables, as you said. For the recode. For the recode. Yeah. And what exactly was your role? Were you with architects oh, it's, or designers? It's like a five-year process. Okay. So, so I'm going to be doing this for the next four years. Congratulations. So let's, we can check in. And I... Please. Yeah. Tell us how the code is, uh, <laughs> if it's being resuscitated or if it's dead on the table. Well, I mean, you know, I'd say... Broadly, what's interesting about the Recode LA team is that we are split into being community activists, like people that have communities like Pacoima or South LA that they have spent decades pushing for reform and change in. And then there are people who are from Long Beach who have uh, been paid thousands to 
put forward proposals and, and do developments in different lucrative parts of the city. And then, you know, there are academics. So there are architects or policy wonks. I don't, I don't know what the term is. <laughs> but, and those are people that are incredibly brilliant and have spent their entire career studying something as simple as parking. And that would be Donald Shoup. Mm. The right. uh, UCLA parking yes. guru, he's all incredible, knowing. and yes. he just you know when when someone like that talks, it just cuts through you know everything that we're talking about because it's it, there's so much gravitas and time spent behind everything he's saying, and you know these three realms we have been trying to unpack the code and look at opportunities to help support a more progressive future Los Angeles. I can't say I haven't, it's, it's going to be a really long process and there's going to be a lot of different political changes that happen as that process goes forward. So I don't really know. It would be misleading to say that it's not going to lead to anything. I think that there's, there is the worry that the 21 of us were put forward to answer to people when in five years, things don't look much different. And we don't have, I would say the capacity or the ability to affect things, I think, as much as we thought we did. Well, there's also, this is no end. The five years may will come and go and things will be drastically different at that time, but we'll just have to see. And it's totally inappropriate for policy to be social, like to try to propagate or forward social values. That's not the purpose of zoning, right? But we could at least, like, you know, talk about the history of zoning doing just that, and maybe possibly think about its implications in certain situations where it might be doing something that's a little bit exclusionary. So I want to actually return to your time in school and talking about these kinds of projects that now you're involved in. Do you feel that, because you you have two quite different culturally education experiences, going to USC for undergrad in Los Angeles and then heading to the GSD for your mm -hmm. MR. Do you feel that the types of issues you're addressing now and the type of work that you do in collaboration and share on the ground activity, do you feel that the current architectural education model sets you up to succeed in those? What is it setting you up to do? Well, you know, when I went to the GSD, it was really funny because those of us who were dealing with social issues projects, like, oh, you could go present like under the stairs in that room. And like, we would, you know, maybe <laughs> there, <laughs> there would be like four or five architects who would come that were already on staff that would come and like, and like, you know, help you out by listening to you talk. A little mm. condescending, you might say. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So, well, and they were all women, right? Mm, like just, yeah. Cause, cause women <laughs> get the feels. Issues. We Here's get the, the air feelings. Quotes, yeah. Air quotes for radio. Yeah. But yeah. so, so what was then the, uh, the high, the, the limelight department and what was, so what were you compromised so, by? Okay. So there is a real thread of glorifying valorizing and fetishizing technology in architecture. And so I think it's awesome. I know how to do Maya Katia, like grass. I know there's no technology. I don't know, first of all. Secondly, they are tools. They are not content. And thank you. Yeah, <laughs> there's a, there's a difference. And if you don't have anything to say with your tools, there's no point in using tools. So at USC, I was going to every single lecture and I kept seeing Greg Lynn present the Taurus as like the first car that had been used with 
3D fabrication technology. And I was like, but it's the fucking Taurus. Like, I'm like, this is the Twilight Zone. We'll post a picture of a Ford Taurus to the show notes in case people don't know exactly how to imagine how underwhelming that is. Yeah, right. It's like a white whale. It's like I would, Greg Lynn would never be caught dead in a Ford Taurus. Like, I think we can get him to quote on that, actually. Yeah, Yeah. awesome. So... And I just, it was like, and you would go to these, uh, the thesis reviews at SciArc at the time. And this was just after they transitioned from the tents in the parking lot into their new like Empire State sideways building. And it was super exciting time. And and all of us at USC and UCLA were like, we're going to leave and go to SciArc. And then they started putting up on the walls grasshopper diagrams and they started doing, you know, Hernan started teaching there and it just, and it, it just became a complete fetish. And I'm all for Zaha Hadid, Sejima and Ando being in the same discipline that makes us stronger. But when we start to completely suck out the content from architecture, AKA culture in a willful way to be deviant, and that becomes the mainstream normative of our practice, we are gutting our ability to be taken seriously at a larger scale. So I, when I went back into the GSD, this was all happening. Like I, it, it, this started happening in like 1999, 1998. And I would say the GSD was incredible in trying to hold both of those contradictions and trying to find a place for both of those cultures. And so someone like Michael Hayes, who was a mentor to me, was talking about postmodernism and really trying to push forward and talk about history in a way that was still framed next to Scott Cohen with, with Kitia. And, and we were talking about working in China and like really understanding the history of China. And so the GSD was doing a good job at that. And I can't say, but I, I still think the profession overvalues paper architecture. And so I think that was definitely... A thing. Can I just ask quickly, Elizabeth, are you registered or do you have any interest in being registered? I have no interest in being registered, although we have a okay. system in our office to do so. And I mean, my okay. dad would be turning over in his grave if he heard that. Aww. This is a topic that's really interesting to me and I've done some work with the AI Emerging Professionals on. So I was just curious and you answered exactly as I would have expected. That, yeah, yeah. So what's really interesting is that I have spoken at the AIA Healthcare Conference in Chicago and they put that I was a registered architect on my name tag. So yeah. yeah. I, at no sh- no juncture, feel any need to reinforce a system that's going to prioritize paying into something that doesn't support me or other people that are just trying to learn. And, you know, at, at Woodbury, we just talked about how there's going to be licensure upon graduation and that that's a new system they're looking into. And that's fantastic. You know, like, that's great. But what about all the people that are moving here from France or, you know, Africa, what about all these people who are coming here to have a perspective? We need to have some sort of, you know, real diversity in the conversation of architecture, because right now the things that have been done in architecture from all sides have been really sanitizing to our conversation. So what are you doing at Woodbury? You're teaching right now? I'm teaching the fourth and fifth year students, and I have been for the past two years. And how are you taking all of this that you're just saying in your own experience and how are you imbuing it into them? We have in our office anywhere from two to sometimes four Woodbury architecture students. So I feel super passionately about having them in our office and working on different projects and really teaching them 
how we can have incredible conversations about Loyola Law School with Frank Gehry, but then also being on site with Plywood and talking about how it's, you know, veneered. And that same level of talking and full scope of conversation happens in the design build studio that uh, was founded by Janine Centuri and that I bring projects into and we work on together. So I'm usually bringing in clients, so to speak, like LA River Core or CD15 with Watts or just the Bowtie parcel, which we just did along the LA River. So we work with Clock Shop, who's an artist, uh, Julian Meltzer. So I bring in those projects and Janine and me or another person will be working with students to create some tangible, physical piece of engagement art and architecture on that site. So the other aspects of your office besides bringing in students, mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about the composition of the other, because I've done some perusing on the other people that are working with you. And it's a really great cross-section yeah. of like, first of all, people who are who have an interest, but maybe perhaps peripheral professional interest in design. Mm-hmm. So explain a little bit about what type of people you recruited to work for LA Moss. So one of the biggest challenges that we had is we all, we brought in a bunch of people that were all people with their master's. And so there's a core five of us and it's really diverse. I don't even know where to start. So I mentioned Helen Learn. She is, uh, grew up in Elysian Valley. She went to the Harvard Kennedy School and she also worked in Garcetti's office in, in Hollywood. She, we've taught her in design and, and illustrator and uh, next I'm going to teach her Rhino. She's someone that is completely ambivalent about every aspect of, of what we would call design. And so where it's a slow process, we just had a long conversation about design not being transactional over email this morning. And so she went, but the incredible thing is, is she is a designer. She really cares about things scaling. She comes to us with, she's the best design critic in our office and not that she's pragmatic and that she starts to understand the thesis or the the synthesis of what you're saying, the ethos. And she says, well, that's incredible because if you could think about that happening on the whole block, like this would have these implications. And, and that's, it's like being like, it, it's so fulfilling and rich to have that conversation. There's Stacey Wrigley, who is from UCLA and did Tom Main's Culture Now studio. And she did only publications and um, media with him. And she's incredibly invested in the cultural connection between architecture and the city. There's uh, Maria Carmen de la Madrid. She's awesome. And she has, she went to Art Center, a part of this program, and I'm not going to say it right, but she was the first guinea pig in this program that was looking at design and design as a tool for engagement. She did an incredibly sarcastic toolkit, which was awesome. (laughs) And it's now being taught, I think, at the D-Lab and some other places because she said it's a hyper-colonial way of going about looking at a community that, you know, you just, I can't, I won't. Just please, like, check it out. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely. We'll put that in the show notes. She's so brilliant and awesome. There's Ross Hansen, who is the most artistic human being I've ever met in my life. And he has his undergrad in landscape, but his grad in 3D making at Cranbrook. And so I kind of let him do his thing and then we'll argue and stuff and he'll do some more stuff. But he's like the most successful mentor in our office because most of us learn through making and, and not through talking. That's the kind of nature of a spatial person. And so he's all these Woodbury students that have come in and he's 
and the youth hires in Watts. He's been able to kind of take them under his wing and and show he's got extreme ethics and show them how powerful making can be. So I don't know if that answers your question. Well, I think it's, no, it certainly does because I think that it's a model for architecture studios that don't, yes. that, that are not at all, like that is not the norm at all. The amount of homogeneity that usually goes yeah. into starting a firm and, and well, it's hierarchical, that, right? Right, exactly. Or it's, or it's because you just want to start something. And so you find the people with the most like-mindedness and totally. you work together because you're fighting against the world or whatever. Yeah. But I think that this is a real model for architecture to do exactly as you're saying, mm-hmm. becoming more of the core cultural icon, like the mm-hmm. thing that can be used to convey culture in the most compelling and most affecting way. Because it's definitely something in LA that you feel warring parties are a strong aspect of our culture. LA is like the perfect place to be doing this. You know, I never saw there as, I didn't see a distinction between landscape and architecture. And so when I went to grad school at the GSD and everyone was asking me, why are you doing that? Why you keep putting like, you know, like, uh, it's cause I went to, I grew up in, in LA. So, you know, we have a history with Tom Maine and Frank Gehry, uh, and Michael Malton and blurring the lines of our discipline. So, you know, and I was just talking to someone about Aaron Paley at Ciclavia and, uh, Mia Lair, who is my co-founder with Moss. And they were really arguing for context, you know, the generation above us. All of these architects were saying, and and designers and forward thinkers were saying, we want to be able to work in the LA River. We want to take over our streets. But they didn't offer us in any way, shape or form a viable business model that at the end of the day didn't make us answer to a client as have them in control of of the prerogative of a project. And so this is a, an attempt to redefine the critical practice. And we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for a series of architects and designers and design thinkers and urbanists saying, this is the context. This is, these are the places where people need to come together. You know, It's not inside the mall. It's not based on capitalism. It's based on culture. And so Moss is like a direct offshoot of that. Is L.A. Moss title the way it is because you might have Moss elsewhere yeah. in the world? Okay, It's the most. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, at the time, uh, Mia, Lara, and I were talking, and, I, and we were talking about Brazil, and we were talking about Latin America, and we were talking about this whole thing that was really happening along a region or a coast. And so Latin America, L.A., the most, um, it's not more, it's not less, it's, it, it's the most we can give to our profession. Amazing. That's a really nice sentiment. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's beautiful. Well, unless you have anything else you want to add, I'm happy having a neat little Ziploc at the end of that. Thank you so much for joining us, Elizabeth. It was super great to talk to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you guys. Great talking to you. Can't wait to see where the work keeps going. Me too. Yeah. Awesome. Have a great day. You too. Bye. 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 So that was great talking to Elizabeth Timmy. I had heard about her work with L.A. Moss a few months ago and was really excited to have her come into the studio. She's like just such a joy to talk to and so energetic and passionate and really doing some really fantastic work in the L.A. area. I'm really hoping that at some point we'll even get to see L.A. Moss kind of morph into other national or maybe even international outposts. I think that would be really awesome. Yeah, she, oh man, her energy level was so great. And I just, after we hung up, 
from the conversation, I just felt so fired up and I had written down all these little quotable bits from the <laughs> conversation um, as we spoke. So I just love the kind of work she's doing. And I'm definitely in putting her into my talk that I'm giving at the AIA National this year, because it's all about these kinds of people that are saying, you know, I can do really interesting work, even if I'm not a real, you know, air quotes, real registered architect. So I just so, so great to talk to her. Totally. And i completely agree. I was in the same boat of just feeling totally jazzed after that conversation. Um, I probably was annoying everyone in the office. I was just bouncing off the walls. But that she also, you know, she comes from a line of architects. She's like a third generation architect and just totally taking a completely different stance to it. Um, not something at all that those prior generations would not like, but just something completely different. And uh, yeah. she was also, if you follow Arcanex Twitter, she was the uh, mystery guest who left behind a little self-reminder <laughs> in our studio. Um, this was something that she came, she was so prepared and she came in with a little sign and she said, don't say fuck on it. If you can't tell in the, in the photo that we posted, it's in, I think it's in Italic Futura. Maybe Paul, you want to try to compare? That, yeah, that yeah. looks like, uh, <laughs> just so good. that people at home who are listening at home can uh, try to best imagine if they haven't seen the photo itself. Yeah, it was, uh, I, I was really bummed that I wasn't able to join the conversation. I just had an opportunity to briefly meet her when she came and she seemed super cool, really fun. I mean, I could just tell right away that she was going to be a fun person to talk to. And she just seemed to emanate good design vibes. Yeah, she um, definitely did not disappoint. And I think especially given her job and the type of work that she does, you see immediately how important that is. She does a lot of work with like community and developer engagement, a lot of talking between very disparate parties. So I think she's totally carved out exactly to do that. And another really cool thing about her is that when I went to go, cause I realized that we aren't following her on Twitter yet. When I went to her Twitter account, I noticed that Barack Obama actually follows her Whoa. on Twitter. So, you yeah. know, he doesn't follow too many people. So that's uh, that's a pretty good endorsement. That's a great endorsement. Yeah. Oh, we're so lucky that we got to talk to her. <laughs> I was going to say that I, I have that sign like taped up all over my room in my, my studio space, <laughs> but it doesn't work out too fucking well. So no, not too fucking well, <laughs> but being from New Jersey, that's kind of like saying good morning. So we say it, we said uh -huh. it a lot in New Jersey. Yeah. They don't say it too much here in yeah. Minnesota. They're kind of afraid of that one. I was actually kind of inspired to make it my own sign that, that says, say fuck more often. <laughs> I, I, I don't have a fucks. problem. I don't have a problem with, uh, with people getting, you know, emotional and swearing on the, you know, it's got to keep it real. I actually, Amelia, I like that phrase. Give more fucks. Give we all need fucks. to give more fucks, you know, exactly. because the world Be liberal needs with help. your fuck giving. It's, it's good. <laughs> wow. <laughs> all right. Well, Let's talk to the lawyer now. Yeah. On, <laughs> onto a completely different subject. <laughs> onto the law. Maybe lawyers. Do you think lawyers have to write that on this their briefcase before they go to court? Don't say fuck. I doubt it. <laughs> the lawyers that I know, yeah, they don't give no fucks. <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of lawyers, Brian Newman, our legal correspondent, is back with us this week with a uh, very interesting story of a court battle that is still going on after six years uh, involving SOM and a condo project that they designed in San Francisco. It's kind of a scary case for architects, really represents a, a big potential liability that could affect the architecture industry in general. So um, it'll be really interesting to follow this case. It's not finished yet, but it's at the California Supreme Court level at this point. 
And uh, why don't we just let Brian describe it in more detail? So I'm here again with Brian Newman, our legal correspondent. Brian, how are you doing? Doing great. Paul, good to be back. So I hear you are bringing an interesting story that uh, is actually a great follow-up to our last two episodes about disputes and resolutions and contracts. I am. I am. So uh, today's story involves a residential construction, a condo construction in San Francisco. The project is called The Beacon. It's a 600-unit condominium project right across the street from AT&T Park where the Giants play. And uh, the issue has actually gone all the way up to the California Supreme Court. And the, the question is essentially a question of liability as between a developer and an architect uh, in terms of a, a negligent construction and, and an allegedly negligent design. So in this case, the developer hires uh, the principal architect, which is uh, Skidmore, Owings & Merrill, SOM, to design the project. Uh, they go ahead and design it. As it turns out, uh, due to the design, allegedly... Uh, there's a problem with the glazing. There's a problem with the ventilation. There's some alleged structural defects. And the building allegedly retains heat to such an extent that it's, it's unlivable for many of the, uh, the people who live there. So once it's finished, the developer sells it, uh, sells 600-odd units. And the association, the condo association, turns around and sues uh, not only the developer, but also the architect, SOM, essentially saying that this is negligent design. Uh, interesting in this case during the construction process or shortly thereafter, uh, when, the, when the issue came up, particularly with the heat retention, SOM went to the developer and said, hey, you know, this is something we could fix uh, by fixing some of the glazing, which would essentially involve more expensive windows. The developer allegedly said, no, you know, we're not going to do that. We're going to keep it the way it is to save costs. And so as a result, ended up in a lawsuit. So what's interesting about the case compared to, to other cases like this the developer is going to be in the case because the developer is the one who actually sold the units to the homeowners. The architect filed a motion with the trial court, the lower court, and said, hey, we didn't have any deal with these homeowners. We had a deal with the developer, so we should be out of the case. And, and the trial court actually agreed with the architect and said, okay, you're out of the case. The homeowners, who are the plaintiffs in the case, went ahead and appealed all the way to the California Supreme Court. And the issue before the Supreme Court was, does the architect have a duty to third parties, third party purchasers whom the architect didn't actually contract with. So the homeowners association appealed the release of liability of the architects, which SOM in this case, that's what they were appealing. That's exactly right. Okay. So the, the question was, should they get out of the case, you know, before the case even went to a jury? So it went all the way to Supreme Court. Supreme Court said, you, the architect, you're on the hook to the future homeowners, uh, even though you didn't have a contract with them. The reason being, according to the Supreme Court, they had reason to know that these units would be sold to members of the public, and then if there was a, an alleged design defect, that this is something that uh, they should be essentially on the hook for. At least at least possibly, you know, the issue will go to a jury. They haven't been found liable yet, but the, the issue is really when could they get out of the case? At the very beginning, or they have to litigate, in this case now, for several years. So unfortunately, it's, it's, it's a bad ruling for architects. It significantly expands uh, the scope of their potential liability. Because in the past, when we get a case like this, the, the sort of knee-jerk reaction was immediately file a motion to dismiss, or what's called a demur in state court. The idea being, architects didn't have any sort of what they call privity of contract with the homeowners. They never entered into a deal with, with the homeowners. They entered into a deal with the developer. So it'd be one thing if they were sued by the developer. But in this case, they were sued by, by parties whom they never actually uh, entered into a contract with. They never received money from. They never took direction from. And so their point was, we have no duty to them. And the Supreme Court disagreed. So another pro-consumer ruling from the California Supreme Court. 
So the architects actually included something in their contract trying to release them of this type of liability, and the Supreme Court disagreed with that. So they overruled that. That's exactly right. They had it actually had a clause which said uh, there, there shall be no third-party beneficiaries as between the contract uh, between SOM and the developer. So no third-party beneficiaries. In other words, this contract is between the developer and SOM, and that's it. And they actually made this argument in the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, no, 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 you don't get off that easy. Uh, you may say there's no third-party beneficiaries, but under California law, we're going to find that you actually have a duty to the homeowners, to the condo owners, and in this case, the, the, uh, the condo association. So it seems like releasing any liability to third-party beneficiaries is a little bit of a gray area because I, I know in the in the news recently there's been a number of cases, strangely, involving large pieces of uh, large buildings falling off. So in this case, with with this point in their contract, uh, releasing themselves from third-party beneficiaries, if a piece of their building, for example, fell off and landed on somebody and killed them, that person would not according to their contract, be allowed to sue the architect, even though the architect may may have been at fault. Yeah, there, there's no, uh, the, the Supreme Court ruling really opens the door to more lawsuits, more lawsuits by uh, by plaintiff's lawyers against, against developers, against engineers, against architects, against all the design professionals who previously were sort of in the background. In other words, it used to be, you know, you had the design professionals, you had the principal architect, you had the sub-architect, you had the engineers, then you had the developer who actually interfaced with the public by selling selling the units. And so what this California Supreme Court case really stands for is this, the fact that, uh, you know, when you have a lawsuit, if you, the homeowner, or you, the homeowners association, you can bring in everybody involved in the project up to certain limitations. There is a statute of limitations, which can be as long as 10 years for what's called a latent defect. But it's, it's really uh, expands uh, the number of people you're going to see in court. So is there a clear way for architects to protect themselves from this type of, of dispute? It's a good question. Unfortunately, it's a tough issue right now. This is a pretty new case. It's about a four-month-old case from the California Supreme Court. So the issue is going to be fleshed out over the coming months. But I think the short answer is this is this is a point that really needs to be negotiated uh, at the outset of the, the contractual relationship between the architect or the engineer and the developer. In other words, you know, when they sit down to have the, the conversation about who's doing what, as uncomfortable as it may be to bring up the topic, you may have to bring up, you know, if there's a lawsuit, who's paying whom, you know, who's indemnifying whom. So typically the developer is going to say, if it's an issue for uh, negligent design, the architect's on the hook for it. And that, that would be the typical developer's point of view. The architect is certainly free to try to negotiate back and say, all right, you know, here's what I'm doing. I'm going to design the, the, the building. I'm going to give you this advice in terms of what I think, for example, with the windows in this case, and you're free to take that advice or not. But if there's a lawsuit, you know, you're paying for it. And in this case, particularly because it was something that was discovered before the construction was finished. Uh, and they actually did make a, a suggestion on how to rectify the problem, you know, by fixing the windows, which would have been a more expensive option. So one thing they could have done, and of course, hindsight is 2020, is essentially renegotiate the relationship at that point with, with the developer and say, here's what we're recommending. You know, you do this, you can do it or not do it. But if you don't do it, and there's a lawsuit, you know, this is something where we put you on notice of it. And, uh, you know, so to the extent that we get sued, you should be on the hook for it. And of course, the developer didn't need to agree to that, but it's something that, you know, is part of the negotiation. Is the court trying to say that the architect should have been more firm in its advice on, on this uh, possible solution? I think what the court was saying was, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the, the rights of the homeowner, the homeowner can sue everybody. And the defendants, the various defendants, who in this case are the principal architect, there was the sub-architect, I believe the engineers in there, and the developers in there, they can all sort it out amongst themselves. So in addition to this principal lawsuit, there's also cross complaints back and forth where, of course, the developer wants money from the architect. The architect likely wants money from the developer. 
So from the court's point of view, the defendants can fight amongst themselves in terms of who's paying, but the, but the homeowner, the condo association gets to sue everybody. So it sounds like this case is setting up a, an interesting precedent, which is kind of scary for, for architects. Perhaps you can come back and uh, talk about this again in, in an upcoming episode so that we can, we can track the, uh, the status of this. Maybe we can talk more about how architects can avoid this problem and protect themselves. I'd love to. Great. Thanks, Brian. All right. Thanks, Paul. Talk to you next week. Okay. Bye-bye. So we're back. Donna, what do you think about this case as a, as a practicing architect? When this case first was decided and they, the, the, it's the Supreme Court of California, right? Decided that um, Correct. SOM could be held liable for a decision that was made against their express direction or, or recommendation as to what would be good. Yes. I believe the trial courts decided that SOM was not liable and did not need to be, they could be exempt from the case, but the Supreme Court denied that and said that they should be included in this case as a defendant. It's really kind of terrifying. I did a little bit of reading on some other law blogs and whatnot when this decision came out, and it's it's really holds architects to a standard that we have till now never felt that we had to meet, you know, that we had to meet our clients' expectations during the process, but that if the building gets sold or moves on to another owner, do we are we still liable to those people for specific things? I mean, I think that um, none of us should design a building that we think is going to fall down in 25 years, certainly, but things like the rooms getting too hot or other, you know, maybe the windows aren't soundproofed enough and that there's too much sound transmission from a nearby highway or something... Basically, it's saying anyone who later in the life of the building has an issue can come back to the designer, or even the architect, even though they didn't have a contract with that person, even though the architect did what their client requested. So for people that are doing smaller projects, it's always a much smaller liability. But we've been hearing for years now that condos are a terrible liability risk. And this decision just makes that even worse. Well, one thing that I discussed with Brian actually after our interview, which unfortunately wasn't included in the recorded conversation, was that developers often utilize a practice of setting up an LLC specific to projects. So if there is some kind of liability issue or legal issue that pops up, they can just wipe their hand cleans of it and declare bankruptcy for their LLC. Dissolve the LLC, yep. Yeah, architecture firms, on the other hand, don't tend to do that. So maybe architecture firms are going to have to start creating, you know, special limited liability corporations for projects in order to protect themselves. So, okay, but so this is how it's been explained to me. And again, I'm not a lawyer. In some states, Indiana is one of them. As an architect, as a licensed professional, you're personally liable. So you don't get an L If I set up an LLC for this project and then I dissolve the LLC and start up a new one for this other project, my liability as a human being carries through those LLCs. There's no protection from a wow. corporate setup. Now, that's not the case in every state, but I know for a fact that in Indiana it is. Well, is that specific to architecture? Because I can't see how something like that would fly in you know, the, the finance uh, industry or... No, it's, it's licensed professionals. So if you're a licensed doctor, a licensed dentist, a licensed lawyer, your corporate structure doesn't give you protection. It's a personal liability mm. because you as a person, as a human, are the one that's granted these rights by the state 
to hold this responsibility. But wait, aren't mm. corporations people? Yeah. Yeah. Well, apparently, yeah. <laughs> it depends what your corporation is, I guess. I mean, that's one of the things that obviously it's great having Brian, but really every state has different laws related to architectural practice. So really my, my word to listeners would be make sure you know what your state's practices are before you go into anything. Because, um, yeah, I was shocked to hear that about Indiana and personal liability. But you know, the other thing, too, to think about is that I think, you know, it seems like the the axiom is that as California goes, so goes the country when it comes to, you know, anything happening yeah. legally. So this does send uh, pretty much a, a shockwave of anticipation or anticipatory legal battles throughout the country if California decided this. So I think the good thing is, is that when I heard Supreme Court, I didn't realize I wasn't sure that it was the California Supreme Court. So the good thing is, is there's still some more fighting to do. And I think it behooves SOM to continue that fight, obviously, for for not just them, but for everybody else involved uh, or not involved. It, it seems absurd to me that a contractor could do what they did, replace the glazing. And, um, you know, just a little I've been reading about it. And they're saying, that, well, it's not the glazing, it's this. But it sounds like, yeah, you you did something wrong and how the architect's responsible for, for that. Well, you know, coincidentally, this, this topic comes up in a week that we've seen three different news stories of building materials falling right. off of major projects, you know, like uh, Zaha Deeds had a project where a 375 pound concrete panel fell off. Raphael Vignoli had a project that a pipe, I believe, fell off their, the building, uh, Roger Sturck and associates is i'm not sure had a had a bolt and debris fall off of one of their buildings i don't think anybody got hurt somebody could have been hurt but you know whose fault was that was it the architect's fault or was it the uh, was it shoddy uh construction it seems like with this type of precedent that's being set even if the construction was at fault the architect could be still liable. It does seem that way. Or not liable, not liable, but like you said before i think you said this before but at least part of the conversation or at least a part of a, a participant in the lawsuit because the architect designs it or the engineer designs it, then the contractor builds it. While we're not, our contract isn't with the general contractor, we have a, we certainly have some tangible connection because general contractor is going to point it out and says, the immediate thing is they go, well, it was designed by them. They, they, they designed it. We just build it. Well, yeah, you just build it, but it's means and methods. <laughs> yeah, then that could become an excuse for every contract. Yeah, absolutely. They could always pass the blame onto the architect. It seems like there's a responsibility for the builders to to ensure the safety, you know, work with the architect to make revisions. In the case of the SOM project, SOM did advise the developer to use a special kind of glass, which would not cause the problems that it did. And the, the builder decided against it to save money. Right. Which means that SOM certainly seems to have a good leg to stand on in terms of the record keeping on the decision making on the project, but that doesn't save them from having to go to court and pay lawyers hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in fees. You know, it's, um, you know, if, if you have liability insurance, supposedly uh, the liability insurer will frequently cover costs, but that's a lot of money. <laughs> it is. Well, we'll see how that plays out. Any, anything in the news this week that's worth bringing up? I know that, uh, there was one big story that kind of dominated the headlines. Yeah, I'm sure everyone is already well aware by now, but um, Architecture for Humanity recently announced that they are shuttering their headquarters in San Francisco. And that's pretty much where the discrete, absolutely, we've confirmed news seems to end. Far just as I to know. be clear, though, mm -hmm. the, yeah, the headquarters in San Francisco is really the only official 
architecture for humanity. Uh, so it's not just one office, it's, it's basically the organization in general. I believe the other citywide branches of architecture for humanity are all volunteer driven anyways. Right. So they, it's unclear as how they'll continue to operate or whether or not, because they're not already on any pay structure that is routed to architecture for humanity. So it's not clear whether or not they will continue or how they'll continue. But clearly this is like a huge blow for any type of social conscious design going forward and how to maintain a sustainable nonprofit in this type of climate. I think most reactions to it have just been like really frustrated fuming of people being like, wow, how ironic that we can get all this funding for all of these ridiculous giant corporate projects and not even keep a nonprofit like Architecture for Humanity running. Um, so I think that's kind of the main narrative running through this, that people are just very disappointed in how how this ended up and that Architecture for Humanity is now having to declare bankruptcy. They've just had to lay off everyone in their H- in their San Francisco HQ and just shut it down. So I don't know, did have Donna or Ken, have you had any previous experience either volunteering or working with Architecture for Humanity? Briefly. In, in Minneapolis, there was a pretty strong chapter here in Minneapolis, but they were pretty much underway with their project that they were working on. So there really wasn't a, uh, a tremendous role for me in that, but uh, I did go to a few meetings here. So When I uh, was teaching at Ball State, teaching design, we took a group of students to San Francisco for a week travel, a travel week, and um, we were able to go to the headquarters in San Francisco. Cameron Sinclair was not there. This was about a year, I think, before he left. But we were able to meet with a couple of their leaders in the San Francisco office, and they, they sat with the students and really talked about their structure and... Um, it's just shocking. It's it's shocking and sad to me that that uh, that this is, has happened. You know, I think just on a very personal note, for those of us who've been on Arconnect for over ten years, going on fifteen, right? How old is the organization? Older than that, even it's uh, going on eighteen years. This year. going on eighteen years. So yeah. I've been on it for probably seventeen of those. And you know, Cameron, a legal adult. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. It'll be drinking soon. The site will be. Cameron Sinclair was a regular poster in the forums when he first started out, when, when, when Architecture for Humanity was still just in its infancy. I think he and Kate had, Kate Storr had just started the the first competition. And, um, yeah, yeah, they were, they were on Arconnect from the very beginning. Um, Arconnect was providing the organization, you know, the primary platform for communication back in, back in those early days. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's been, it was really shocking after Cameron and Kate left. I literally have not heard a word from the organization. So I don't know what's going on, you know, behind closed doors, but it seemed like they shut down the moment that they left because I, it's been radio silence. I mean, at least, at least from my perspective. It does seem quite fishy. It's not like the need went away and, oh, we're closing up shop because, hey, we succeeded everybody's housed and everybody's taken care of. So the need is there and no one's filling that vacuum. It certainly isn't um, Habitat for Humanity that's filling that vacuum. So I don't understand where the mismanagement went. And I, I'm no less shocked that today than I was when I first heard that Cameron was leaving. I'm like, how does the, how does the, how does the guy who's been, it's like, you know, Barack Obama just walking away from being president. I mean, it's like, why? <laughs> He's the man who's in charge. How do you just walk away? And I didn't understand any of that. Maybe Kareem Rashid secretly took over because, you know, he was, he famously said that all of these problems in the world have been resolved oh, right. and now we need to move on to <laughs> making everything beautiful. Yeah, we just make, have to make things pretty now. Yeah, that's exactly what Kareem said. I think a lot of us are still in shock and um, 
you know, hopeful that, that something might turn around from it. But Yeah. Yeah. It's really sad that this has happened to architecture for humanity, but I think it's even sadder on a, on a larger scale that this type of organization can't, can't sustain, um, at least in the model that it is in right now, or it was in prior to disbanding. The other thing I thought that was when I read the release from Cameron, there was something in there, or even maybe it wasn't Cameron, maybe it was the organization, but they said something a little cryptic that they were going to refocus their mission. So yeah, they did say that. I, I don't quite. I, if you're shutting down, you're going bankrupt. What's the refocusing of the mission? I don't understand what that is. I didn't get that either. You either shut down and just close close shop, yeah, or you change your mission and continue in a different direction. Right. Yeah, I was a little confused by that too. So the direct quote is, has provided its mission and is planning to close. So that sounds like the mission is now to close, which sounds like a dead end. Oh, is that what? the From the Cameron's message that we posted into the, on the news post, which we'll link to in the show notes, um, it says, uh, we just heard the news that Architecture for Humanity, the organization we started more than 15 years ago, has pivoted its mission and is planning to close. We are deeply saddened by this. So it sounds like, yeah, that sounds like a dead end. It sounds like whatever continued presence will be the responsibility of the volunteer organizations around the country, which from personal experience, I've been exposed a little bit to to, um, volunteers in both San Francisco and Los Angeles, and they are pretty incredible people that are very gung-ho and have always been able to maintain somewhat of an independent operation. Obviously, losing a headpiece is going to be devastating to them as well, but I hope that maybe there will be some alternative uh, mode of continuing that they can adopt and continue onward as uh, as volunteer initiatives. But um, maybe we can uh, get off the dreary topic of architecture for humanity and end out the episode. How does that sound? Yeah. You know, I think uh, this has been a long episode. It's probably time to call it a week. But before we we end, I just wanted to remind people to send in your client horror stories. Yes. The gorier, the better. You can send those into all the regular channels for communication, which I will include right now. There's uh, Twitter. Include hashtag Arcanex Sessions if you uh, want to send us a question or a comment or anything about the podcast. You can also send us an email, connect at arcanex.com, and you can call us on our on our hotline, 213-784-7421. Uh, messages can be up to three minutes. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving us a rating or a review or both on iTunes. It really helps out the exposure of the podcast on iTunes, and we would really appreciate that. So thanks to everybody for listening, and talk to you next week. Great. Talk to you next week. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.